Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If I gave you all a quiz and asked you to name five tech visionaries and entrepreneurs in the U.S., you'd all pass. If I asked you to name even one visionary entrepreneur in China, the world's largest market, you'd probably come up empty. But if you did have an answer, it would probably be Jack Ma, the founder and leader of Alibaba. The company recently went public in the largest IPO in U.S. history. It's the largest virtual shopping mall in the world, and its impact, not just in China, but in the developing world, is profound and impactful, both economically and politically. In many ways, Alibaba may actually represent the future of business in China as the Chinese economy continues its effort to rebalance. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Duncan Clark. He's a former Morgan Stanley investment banker. He's fluent in Mandarin and has lived and worked in China for over 20 years. He's an expert on China's Internet sector. He's a visiting scholar at Stanford University. And he's the author of a new book entitled Alibaba, The House That Jack Ma Built. Duncan Clark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. I want to begin by talking a little bit about what Alibaba is not and so much misconception about it here. Alibaba is not just a Chinese version of Amazon. Can we, can we clarify that first? You're right. It, I have to say it is and it isn't in a way. I mean, it is Amazon in the sense that it's the symbol of e-commerce in China, much as Amazon is the symbol of e-commerce here. But it's so much more as well in China. Uh, the reason being that, uh, as Jack Ma likes to say, in the U.S., e-commerce is a dessert, but in China it's, it's the main course. <laughs> there, there really hasn't been uh, efficient retail in China before. I mean, many consumers haven't really experienced, uh, particularly in the sort of second, third-tier cities, what it's like to really be a consumer uh, until e-commerce uh, delivered the goods to them and delivered choice for them and trust. And so Jack is associated not only with that sort of unlocking of their sort of spending power, but sort of empowering them as individuals. Uh, and that's why he has such an iconic appeal, uh, much more than, say, um, Jeff Bezos does, who is clearly a symbol of e-commerce. Jack is, is much more than that. It's also a platform for small entrepreneurs. It really becomes, and, and started out as a kind of business-to-business enterprise. You're absolutely right. I mean, actually, uh, if we first let's look at the consumer um, business that it is today, it differs very importantly from Amazon in that, uh, as you say, small businesses can set up shop on, uh, on Alibaba. They don't actually have to pay to list their goods there. Um, on the, they have two major sites. One of them is called Taobao, where you know, if I wanted to sell umbrellas or storm doors or whatever it might be, I could just go ahead and do so. Um, I may have to spend some money on advertising my store on the site, but I wouldn't have to pay a commission. And so, you know, Alibaba itself doesn't own the products, uh, unlike Amazon, which actually has inventory. So that means that Alibaba has scaled much more uh, fast, uh, much quicker even than, uh, than uh, Amazon. So in, in that way, it's, it's uh, very different. And also, when Alibaba started out, uh, which is, you know, way back in 99, it didn't start as a consumer site, because actually it would have been too early. Uh, there were others that copied Amazon and failed. But Jack Ma realized, coming from the heartland of entrepreneurship in his province of Zhejiang, just, uh, just west of Shanghai, um, he realized that small businesses needed exports and they needed customers overseas, so he set up a business-to-business platform. Only later did he add the consumer-facing site that uh, Alibaba is famous for today. Talk a little bit about uh, Jack Ma and his background. It's very different than, than some of the tech entrepreneurs that we're familiar with here in the U.S. You're absolutely right. We, you know, look at the Jeff Bezos example. He was working on Wall Street. You know, he went to Princeton. He came from a fairly well-off family. His parents were at... Uh, uh, an oil executive. Jack didn't have any of that. I mean, Jack uh, came really from nothing. Uh, he was 
happened to be born in this uh, you know center of commerce that I mentioned. But other than that, he had really not much going for him. You know, his uh, one of his parents was a factory worker. He was born in 1962. You know, just before the Cultural Revolution. So um, he didn't actually also have much in terms of math skills. He has no really tech background. So we, we people call him a tech entrepreneur, but he's really an entrepreneur who sort of did tech uh, by building a team around him. And so he famously, you know, he likes to play down his uh, his skills or his lack, or he plays up his lack of skills. But of course, he has this amazing charm. I mean, he, unlike a lot of, you know, what we think of geeks, you know, um, maybe not always that good at the social skills. You know, Jack is extremely good at uh, telling a story uh, and and bringing people to his side. His parents actually used to tell stories uh, almost so professionally in these sort of troops, uh, sort of lo- local art forms. So he, he grew up in a household of sort of imagination. He, he, he buried his, himself in books and movies. And he also just kind of hit the streets and started learning uh, English and, uh, by talking to tourists who came up, uh, came to Hangzhou, which is a sort of beautiful tourist city, and basically said, I'll show you around town for free if, if you let me uh, speak to you in English. Tell us a little bit about his business acumen. Uh, Alibaba was not the first business that he started. He had a couple that failed first. That's right. I mean, he, you know, he, he uh, as I said, didn't have the uh, numeracy, really. He barely got into college, and it was only on his third try, and that was an extra space, and he ended up becoming an English teacher, which he enjoyed. But, you know, his first venture was a natural extension of being an English teacher was a translation business, and it did sort of okay, but it was never going to fulfill the ambitions that he had. In fact, while he was actually an English teacher, he also sold uh, things on the streets. He sold uh, bought and sold plastic carpets um, <laughs> just to supplement his meager income as an English teacher. And then he soon realized after a, a lucky sort of trip to the U.S., in fact, to Seattle, he uh, discovered the Internet back in 95. He did an early sort of view of what that might be. And then he launched his second business. Uh, so after the translation business, he launched something called China Pages, which was to create like a yellow pages for business uh, in China, which uh, was so far absent back then. That also uh, failed, though. It was actually sort of, there was a rival business set up by the local government, and they took him over. Um, so he ended up working for the government in Beijing. Luck had it that he was a tour guide one day when Jerry Yang, the co-founder of Yahoo, came to visit China. <laughs> that created a relationship which, uh, many years later, would uh, allow uh, Yahoo to invest uh, $1 billion in Jack's third venture, which is Alibaba. So he's had this sort of happenstance uh, kind of uh, story, but he's, he's kind of made his own luck uh, throughout his life. What was the inspiration for him for Alibaba? What what did he evolve in terms of how he thought he could create this business? Well, he's always been focused on you know solving customer needs, customer problems. I mean, Jeff Bezos and others talk about it too. But you know, um, this guy really believes it. I mean, Jack famously says, you know, customer first, employee second, shareholder third. You know, and, and in the case of the customers, he started out realizing that all these local factories and small businesses around him in, in Zhejiang province or Jiangsu or Shanghai, this area, you know, they, they've been set up um, by families, individuals, but they really didn't have much of an international understanding. A lot of them didn't speak English. His first role was to, in the second venture, as I mentioned, just translate the names of the products and the prices and put it on the Internet. Um, but with Alibaba, he realized he could do more than that. And by raising capital, as he did quite soon, I met him just after he'd founded the company before he raised capital. But pretty soon, people were drawn to this model that he could actually help these, you know, connect these producers in China to uh, consumers or actually you know, businesses overseas that wanted to source their products in China. So, so he really spotted the opportunity there. And uh, raising capital and building a team, he managed to build Alibaba from the beginning.
As Alibaba has become a public company, as it has become larger and larger, more of a powerful force, as you write about, particularly in the developing world, he's spreading out now into many other ventures, including buying a newspaper like Bezos did and buying the South China Morning Post, also ventures in, in finance and a number of other areas. Is there a danger that he faces at this point in the growth of Alibaba of taking his eye off of the core business? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a risk of that, and he talks about that. Um, I guess the the challenge for Alibaba, in, in a good sense, is they're so dominant in the core business of e-commerce, be it uh, consumer e-commerce now, helping these small merchants sell or increasingly selling big brands or helping big brands sell to Chinese consumers, whether it be luxury brands or day-to-day brands like Procter & Gamble. He's sort of built out the e-commerce infrastructure in China, uh, as well as payment. And payment got him into finance because, you know, once you start handling people's money, uh, they might have extra balance. And so he launched a money market fund, which within six months became the second largest in the world just because people had put so much money into it. So, you know, he, he's, in a way, the, the success of his e-commerce business has taken him into other areas like finance. Um, maybe more of a stretch is media. I mean, you mentioned the sort of kind of questionable or, or uh, well, the sort of acquisition of the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, which takes him into politics, given the nature of that uh, the territory there and the relation to Beijing. But he's also investing in Hollywood. Um, he talks a lot about happiness and health as the next big mm-hmm. drivers for the company over the next 10 years. You know, he's looking at an aging population in China, also looking at a population that is becoming more aware of its health, also some of the impact of pollution and so on is a big concern. So he's investing in pharmaceutical, but also you know, happiness, as he talks about entertainment, the sort of happy Hollywood you know, stories that he wants to, to produce for China. It's a little airy-fairy, fuzzy, you know, kind of vision, but it's something that he thinks is, is going to be adapting to the changing taste of Chinese consumers. How has he managed to stave off competition in the Internet business? Well, in his core business, as we just described, in terms of the e-commerce business, I, I call this the, sort of the iron triangle. It's actually Jack's word, but, I mean, the, he has the commerce, he has the finance, and he has the logistics. And by logistics, I mean the courier business, you know, I mean, if you take one of the peak days for Alibaba, which is the 11th of November every year, which they call Singles Day, last year he did $14 billion of uh, sales on that day, far bigger than uh, Cyber Monday. But you have over 1.3 million uh, people delivering the goods on that day, and that number keeps increasing. So because he's been dominant in commerce, finance, and um, logistics, um, you know, it's going to be hard for others to chip away. There are companies like JD, which are trying to chip away at that. Uh, Tencent is another um, very good company involved in the mobile arena. But, um, you know, they, they haven't been able to sort of really dent too much um, his dominance. But, you know, that dominance can be a challenge also. I mean, ultimately, if he's too dominant, um, that may raise uh, issues with government as well. So I think he's interested in diversifying. But, you know, some of the things he's getting into, he just uh, overnight I was reading he's uh, launching, maybe relevant to Napa Valley, a holiday for wine. So the 9th of September, um, which in Chinese is Jojo, it also sounds like alcohol, alcohol. So... This is going to be National Wine Tasting Day. He, he announced it with the Italian Prime Minister as a way to promote Italian wine exports to China. But I think he's going to extend it to other countries. So suddenly he's the wine guy as well. He just bought a chateau in Bordeaux, actually. So he's, <laughs> it's hard to keep up with Jack. How is he responding to the changing dynamics of the Chinese economy right now? Well, you're right. I mean, China, as we all know, the last 30 years, we all think of made in China, right? And uh, that's that's been a boon, frankly, to consumers overseas. You know, think of uh, how many products we've bought at Target and Walmart and all that. But it's also left China with a legacy of overcapacity, uh, not just in sort of consumer products, but things like steel and so on. And the terrible legacy of pollution, you know, which has been affecting people's health and 
Um, but now China has to make a major restructuring away from this production-driven economy and export-driven economy to one that is more powered by the Chinese consumer at home. Um, and that doesn't happen overnight. You know, most most major economies go through this. The U.S. went through this. Um, you know, the U.K. where I originally came from did the same. So um, the government has to focus on helping people save less in China. What's interesting is the Chinese put so much money into the mattress effectively for a rainy day, you know, waiting for issues that might be with their health or pension um, and so on or education. And so the government has to focus on improving social welfare and other things so that Chinese can save less and spend more, and spending will become the motor of the economy. But again, you know, Alibaba is not changing that itself, but it's certainly a useful symbol of you know, showing what consumption-driven China can look like. And, and Jack's positioning himself for that shift. And to what extent is he positioning himself in terms of these other businesses in and around the Internet, which was his original fascination? And, and to what extent is it really other areas and other businesses entirely that he's getting into? Well, you're right. I mean, when you start thinking about, you know, wine and uh, pharmacy, uh, <laughs> pharmacy <laughs> and so on, what is the common connection? You know, he has a big vision. I mean, he personally describes it as the shift. We're shifting away from the information technology era, the IT era that, you know, really informs what we think about the Silicon Valley revolution and so on, to what he calls the DT revolution, the data technology revolution. Well, what he means about that is, you know, every time we make a purchase or we browse something, you know, there's data there. Um, there's uh, our habits, uh, our spending habits, our credit. Um, and a lot of these areas, you know, in the U.S. might be very developed. We have credit scores. We have you know, a whole array of companies active in these areas. But in China, interestingly, the banks, the state banks, never really did much research on customers. Um, they didn't really care very much about individual uh, savers. They just took their money um, <laughs> and paid low rates of interest. So certainly in finance, he sees major opportunities. You know, to some extent, Alibaba knows much more about what's happening uh, in individuals' bank accounts or in their daily lives than, than the banks and maybe even the government in many areas. So you know, he's positioning himself to uh, leverage this through, you know, cloud technologies and all these new buzzwords to basically be able to predict, if you will, and maybe influence you know, the way consumers spend money. Another example is in media and entertainment. They're talking about understanding more and more their customers so they can actually make films uh, that fit the needs of those customers and market them in the ways that will be most effective. So they're, they're trying to, you know, revolutionize areas through the power of the Internet, but also the data that flows through mm -hmm. To what extent is he leveraging his own celebrity and the fact that, that he does have this huge footprint in China and a substantial footprint here in the U.S.? Yeah, I think, you know, he's, uh, for somebody who's, you know, quite short and, uh, you know, from an English teacher background, he's, you know, he's not shy. <laughs> <laughs> he loves to be on stage, and I have a chapter called Jack Magic, which I mentioned just the you know, he, the, his mesmerizing impact on sort of effect on a, on a room, and it could be you know a bunch of students who obviously students love to hear about how to get rich, um, but he also talks to sort of older members of the population uh, overseas as well, bankers to you know tech tech entrepreneur. I mean, it's it's amazing. He has this ability to kind of spin his story, and as I said, he his parents are storytellers. He's a storyteller ultimately, and so he knows how to use this. Um, but he's you know he it's not just an act. I mean, he is a very strategic thinker. I mean, he, he kind of knows where things are going. I mean, he'll know the audience very well, but he'll also try to think two or three steps ahead. Um, but it sometimes manifests itself in interesting ways. When um, in uh, November of last year, he went to the Apex Summit in Manila. President Obama interviewed him, um, which is kind of a departure. But um, you don't want to go on stage after Jack. You know, you really want to let him <laughs> be the star. And he, he knows his audience. So <laughs> He's a, he's a great performer. Talk a little bit about his ambitions at this point. They seem to be boundless. 
Well, I mean, because the internet affects everything, and he fervently believes in the power of the internet. He always has. I mean, he was a real evangelist. You know, as a result of that, he can pretty much justify anything that touches the internet. Um, by the way, famously, he he uh, he was very early to believe in the internet. He was e- earlier than Bill Gates uh, to believe in the internet. He ac- actually invented a quote by Bill Gates back in in '95, saying, "Bill Gates says the internet will change everything." Bill Gates had never said that, but he said, "Well, if, if I, Jack Ma, said that, people wouldn't believe me." This is a way that he got people. <laughs> and later, Bill Gates did believe that. You know, see, so he sometimes even reinvents things in an interesting way to to get his point across. So, but he has this fervent belief in the power of the internet, and I think it's not unique to Jack. I mean, I think it's difficult to underestimate the impact that the internet has had on China. It hasn't changed things in the way that many people expected in terms of politics, and there's been terrible sort of crackdowns on. Um, you know, free speech and so on recently, but it's had a major impact on the way people live their lives and most aspects of their lives in terms of consumption. And so he's very much on that second part. Um, so, yeah, I think he feels like he has a license to do that. He also has the currency. I mean, they raised $25 billion uh, in their largest, you know, world's largest IPO a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, people are falling over themselves to work with him. Another area is sports, for example. He's bought, he bought a, a soccer team in Guangzhou. He just announced the deal with rugby um, in Europe, I think so. Um, you know, he he's really um, leveraging the fact his celebrity status to get deals that are going to be, you know, hopefully giving him the the pathway to what he wants, which is a 102 year company. He founded the company in '99, saying he wants the company to last for 102 years, so it could span three centuries. <laughs> it's, it's quite quirky. What is his relationship with the government? How does the government view him, and how does he interface with them? No, that's a good question. I mean, um, his uh, line to that, by the way, and, you know, like a comedian, he has these stock phrases, which are often quite funny, is that, you know, fall in love with the government, but never marry them. Uh, And in my book, I say, well, you know, actually, if he was to marry the government, he'd be a polygamist, because when we say the Chinese government in China, there are many, many arms of that government, be it the provincial level or the central level. And often, you know, they're sort of falling over each other to try and get different things from, from entrepreneurs and so on. But the fundamental thing that the that Jack has realized or has positioned himself for is that the government needs economic growth. They need this shift to happen from this production driven to this driven to this consumption driven economy, and so Alibaba can be very useful in that. But it doesn't mean that they don't have tensions. I mean, about a year ago, Jack got into a bit of a spat with uh, the agency and the government that deals with fakes, who said, you know, you're, there's too many fake things being sold on your platform, and you need to sort this out. And that comes up quite often when you have mm-hmm. merchants selling, you know, boxes of well, we don't know to the individuals, you know. So he is occasionally under pressure. He's under pressure from the banks, as I mentioned. The state banks are feeling the heat from the um, encroachment, if you will, of Alibaba in certain areas. So I, I think of it like a dance. It's a delicate maneuver. He has to avoid stepping on toes, but he has he has to dance the music to some degree, but not be completely controlled by it. To what extent is he a model or a mentor for other business leaders in China? He is, I think, in terms of his achievement. Obviously, he's either the first or the second richest man in China, depending on the stock price of him and one other rival or two <laughs> every day. So, you know, he's always in the spotlight. Um, people clearly are inspired by his story. Uh, but on the, on the other hand, it's quite interesting um, uh, people sometimes describe him as E.T. I mean, he's sort of quirky looks, but some people think he's actually an extraterrestrial, that he, he's so different from the average story of what you would imagine in China, somebody who had maybe connections or somebody who went to the top school or went to the U.S. and came back. 
but he's so different that it's almost like the exception that proves the rule. You know, he's, <laughs> so people often, you know, aspire to sort of emulate him, but you really, it's such a unique story that I don't think you could sort of follow his path. And, you know, China's changed and moved on as well. So, but no, I mean, he clearly, uh, he, you know, like, like human nature, I mean, people are both admire him and some of the entrepreneurs are probably quite jealous of him. <laughs> so it's, it's a mixed bag. But no, he, many people, you know, uh, hold him out as an example. I think partly of, you know, the Chinese, a China-based entrepreneur, as you started the, the segment saying, you know, he he is in the pantheon, if you will, of the, you know, the Steve Jobs is the Jeff Bezos is now. And I think that's a big achievement that Chinese are very proud of. I want to come back to, to something you mentioned before as one of his fundamental principles which which he takes very seriously this idea of the customer being first and and how that's played out for him in terms of Alibaba and any of his businesses. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, of course, every customer, every company says we, you know, customer number one, or we care about the customer. But not every company says, well, shareholder number three. <laughs> and look, there's a bit of a feint here. It's not always that he's, you know, not helping shareholders make money, but he plays a long game. I mean, he's saying, look, you know, I may do things that will take time and you have to believe me on this stuff and in that actually he shares a, a characteristic with Jeff Bezos mm-hmm. as, you know famously I mean Amazon uh, it took many many years for it to go public I think it was seven years as a public company something like that so Jack also has uh, had a long-standing commitment to making things free so for example he just bought as you mentioned the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong one of the first things they did uh, was to scrap the paywall and say, look, we're not going to charge um, people to access the content. We're going to figure out ways through advertising and other things to, to subsidize it or to make it you know, profitable eventually. And he's done the same with um, his e-commerce platforms. I mean, uh, eBay was uh, actually ahead of China, uh, ahead of Alibaba in China, pursuing consumer e-commerce. And they laughed at Jack when he launched his business for free. You know, merchants could list their products for free. And eBay said free is not a business model. Well, within two or three years, they were out of China and Jack had won. You know. <laughs> uh, how he did that was getting um, merchants to pay for advertising their goods, not to list them or pay commissions. So, you know, obviously you have to make money eventually. It's not like it's a charity. But he, he often will make the consumer-driven experience uh, so powerful, the, the, so the marketplace. He really has a sense of the street and what it feels like to be a merchant because he was one himself. And he makes that happen. And when some of his colleagues have tried sometimes to impose fees or downgrade that, he, you know, the only time uh, his former CEO um, of his, one of his businesses told me that he, the only time he saw Jack lose his temper was when um, he had removed, the CEO had removed a sort of free chat function on the homepage of the website, allowing merchants to talk to each other. And he said, you made a mistake there. You immediately put that chat back. Um, the CEO wanted to sell that space for advertising. And Jack, and Jack said, no. People go to the market every day. Maybe they don't buy every day, but they want to go to the market to, to have a community, to have a chat. You know, so that gives you a sense of his real you know, understanding of the street. One of the other areas that uh, Alibaba is having a profound influence is in the developing world. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. So you know, in development economics, we talk about the South-South links, you know, the links between emerging markets and other emerging markets. You know, I mean, often, you know, frankly, all of us think in the West, we're the center of the world in different aspects, but that's changing as we know that, you know, huge population growth in emerging markets, huge economic development, you know, ups and downs, obviously, right now, with, you know, Brazil and Russia and so on. But in those markets, like Brazil, for example, Alibaba has become a very popular website. In Russia, it's the number one e-commerce website. It became the number one e-commerce website without even opening an office in Russia. It just started putting its listings in, in Russian. And so, you know, China's the great producer for the world. And, you know, so whether it be tchotchkes or, 
you know, computers or cell phones. I mean, lots of stuff is made in China, but increasingly, you know, uh, in developing markets, people are wanting to buy um, bulk or increasingly individual items from China. So we've seen a huge growth there and links between uh, and it's actually reflected in, I mean, I've written my book in English and it's coming out in Chinese, but we've, we've um, started to have um, uh, local language editions are coming out in, in Indonesia and in Russia and Ukraine and Brazil and Spain, where there's a big sort of trading population of Chinese. So I think we're seeing this South-South link really manifesting itself in how Alibaba connects to the world. Overnight, actually, Alibaba just announced a, a billion-dollar investment in Southeast Asia, so linking in, you know, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines, etc. So it's it's very strong in that in that emerging market world. Who influences Jack Ma? Who does he look up to? Who are the people, whether they be in the U.S. or anywhere else, that he admires? Yeah, it's a pretty interesting cocktail. I mean, I went through it because he has a, a, a quite uh, specifically called the six. Uh, uh, element sword philosophy anyway it's in the book but in that it's a mix of sort of inspiration from chinese uh, martial arts um and there's an, a particular author called jin yong who's a famous sort of uh, pulp fiction martial art uh, uh, writer but also um jack welsh you know uh the former uh, chairman of, uh, ceo of ge and his sort of approach um and believe it or not forrest gump uh, <laughs> <laughs> certainly in the early years jack would re- re- refer um endlessly to Forrest Gump and that's sort of the, the how inspired he was by that film. <laughs> it's, a, it's a unique cocktail of influences that he, he draws on, but uh, he, he gets very passionate about, about those characters that I mentioned. And does he uh, plan more business ventures in the U.S.? Yes. I mean, he's certainly investing heavily in the U.S., uh, but it's not always for the U.S. market itself. Mm-hmm. So, for example, he might, uh, Alibaba has been investing in technology companies in Silicon Valley, um, partly because he wants to bring the fight back home to people who are encroaching on his turf. Uh, so, for example, uh, Alibaba's invested in the in the taxi, you know, ride-sharing company Lyft, L-Y-F-T, and not in Uber, because back in China, uh, Jack's company, and allied with another, is actually taking on and actually beating Uber at its own game in China. So some of this is you have to look at the global uh, landscape. They're sort of making alliances, they're uh, making investments, uh, par- partly for profit, but partly for stre- strategic gains at home. They've actually tried um, some uh, U.S.-facing uh, sites. They had one called 11main.com, which was an idea of building kind of a consumer-facing website in the U.S., but it didn't work because, you know, the conditions for e-commerce are very different uh, in the U.S. from China. We have very efficient offline retailers, and we have Amazon, you know. So, in a sense, Jack's going to have to find new new technologies, new shifts in consumer trends to uh, come heavier into the U.S., I think. But he will certainly invest here. Duncan Clark, his book is Alibaba, The House That Jack Ma Built. Duncan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thank Thank you. you.